Hi, I'm Diana Panunchal, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and you're listening to Call Number with American Libraries. Grab your spell books, get those cauldrons bubbling, and ready your broomsticks. This episode, we're delving into the world of witchcraft. First, American Library's associate editor Megan Bennett speaks with Dan Lipcan, director of Phillips Library at Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. The museum is hosting an exhibition on the Salem Witch Trials through the end of November. The two discuss the library's vast collection of materials related to the trials and debunk common myths and misconceptions. Then, staffers from Troy Public Library in Michigan share spooky snippets from the winning entries of the library's 2022 Scary Story Contest. Finally, I speak with K.L. Pereira, archivist and curatorial information manager at Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. She's taught classes on how to perform tarot card readings and shares with us the ways in which librarians can implement similar programs. Visit AmericanLibraries.org to watch the personal reading that she gave me. First, a word from our sponsor. This Halloween season, the Public Library Association has a spine-tingling opportunity for your library to be a part of national-level research. Do your Wi-Fi speeds go bump in the night? Are your public access computers older than the Crypt Keeper? Does your library offer wickedly cool coding programs? PLA wants to know. Participate in the 2023 Technology Survey and be entered for a chance to win a fantastic prize. Visit PLA.org to learn more. Don't ghost us. Your library data matters. What new revelations are librarians and scholars discovering about the Salem Witch Trials today? And what are some common myths they're working to dispel? American Libraries Associate Editor Megan Bennett speaks with Dan Lipcan, Director of Phillips Library at Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts, to find out more. First off, can you tell me a little bit more about the Phillips Library, particularly what it holds and what kind of history it preserves? The Phillips Library is the is the research library of the Peabody Essex Museum. And the museum is based in Salem, Massachusetts. The library is currently in a is now in a facility up in Rowley, Massachusetts, which is about 15 miles north. And the Phillips Library is one of the oldest libraries in the United States. We were founded at the same time as the museum was, um, as part of the museum as when it was founded as the East India Marine Society in 1799. So we've been around for more than 220 years, and you know, we have very large collections of, of manuscripts and archives, lots of books, pamphlets, broadsides, photographs, newspapers, maps, all sorts of great stuff, ephemera. We have a, a global scope, and, and we're almost encyclopedic. We're very strong in areas such as maritime art and history, the maritime trade, Asian export art, and the arts of China and Japan and Korea, Native American culture, American decorative arts, and the history of, of early America, in particular, Massachusetts and uh, in New England. So it's an amazing collection and, and one that I think deserves to be better known. And from 1980 to 2023, your library held the largest concentration of court documents from the Salem Witch Trials in the world. Can you explain you know, how large that collection was and what that included? 
Yeah, it was about about 530 original manuscripts that were the official documents of the proceedings of the Salem Witch Trials, so essentially court documents. They covered everything from being arrest warrants to transcriptions of examination testimony to indictments to testimonies by witnesses, both for and against accused witches. Uh, There are lots of um, petitions for exoneration or restitution in the aftermath of the trials. There's one warrant for execution that we stewarded for a while uh, when the documents were here. And, you know, really gives you the most complete picture of the trials. And they're really the closest thing we have to the the truth of, of what happened during the Salem Witch Trials. They were put on deposit with one of our ancestor institutions, the Essex Institute, in 1980 by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Archive. And, and about a year ago, they they called and, and recalled the loan. So they had wanted to build a new facility to store those documents. And it was 43 years later, it was completed. So they were um, they were ready to take the documents back. And does your library still hold other archives or works um, related to the Salem Witch Trials as well? We do, yeah. We have a lot of archival collections related to families of people who were involved in the trials or or folks whose ancestors were involved in the trials. You know, local history is something that we're very, very strong in. We certainly have plenty of of printed books of all kinds. Every year, there are more books published about the Salem Witch Trials, and, and we try to collect everything we can, whether they're children's books or whether they're scholarly volumes on on what happened during the trials is a very active area of scholarship. So we try to keep up with that. Also, interestingly, we have we have collections that are related to some of the commercial activity that started in the 19th century when folks in Salem realized they could actually profit from the witch trials. And, and that really began in the, in the late 1800s. And so we have catalogs of dealers that were here operating in the city and selling things related to the witch trials. We have lots of ephemera advertisements, sheet music about the witch trials. Even recently, we acquired an original poster from the the Disney film Hocus Pocus that was released in the 90s. That's a huge hit here. So, you know, we try to collect all kinds of things related to the trials here. Either from the return documents or the current in-house collection, do you have any favorite or particularly notable items? The most notable document was the warrant for the execution of Bridget Bishop, Um, one of two death warrants that is known to exist. The whole universe of witch trials documents numbers about a thousand. The other is held by the Boston Public Library, but this one, the warrant for the execution of Bridget Bishop, was signed by Chief Justice William Stoughton, has his uh, wax seal in the left-hand margin, and at the bottom, you know, and he provides instructions on what is to happen. At the bottom is what's called an officer's return, where the, the constable reports what he's done, right? He's writing back to the magistrate to say, you know, I've taken Bridget Bishop to the execution site. And he actually literally writes, I have hung her by the neck until she was dead, which is like entirely traumatic and harrowing. But there it is. There's his report right there, Sheriff George Corwin. So that's a really meaningful and important and quite moving document. I think in looking at the documents again for this iteration of the exhibition on view now through the end of November, um, it's called the Salem Witch Trials Restoring Justice. We're looking, we were looking at the materials from this angle of like, how did the community work to repair itself? You know, this was a crisis that tore apart families and tore apart the community. And one of the things that we noticed on one of the first um, documents that we have on view, it's uh, the arrest warrant for Sarah Osborne and Tichaba, who had been enslaved by Reverend Samuel Paris. And it's one of the first documents produced by the trials. It was, you know, the first accusations and on the back of it. So there's on the front is the 
the instructions to arrest both women. And on the back of it, the constable reports that he's arrested these two. And he also says that he's looked diligently for more evidence, but he can't find any. And so to us, this was, you know, it's always been there. But for us, it's been really interesting to think about this from the angle of, of justice and say, okay, well, what what would have happened if the magistrates had read this report and questioned their desire to, to prosecute the, these witch trials, right? Like there's no evidence here. And frankly, there never was, right? These are just innocent people accused of, of something made up. We also have a collection of, of real objects that either belong to or were used by or have an association with the people that were involved in, in the trials. And so you know, among them are a couple of really old casement windows from the 17th century. One belonged to the town family and one belonged to the Buffums, who were Quaker family who lived within sight of the hill where the executions were. And windows were really seen as a portal in the, the 1700s. They're evocative in a way because we can imagine people seeing specters come through, enter the house or leave the house by these windows. And our designers do such a wonderful job of activating them as windows, you know, casting light through them so there's a shadow on the floor. What has been the process of making those court documents accessible to the public? What did that look like for you and your colleagues? And what kinds of challenges came with preserving these documents and making them public for, for a modern audience? Because, of course, they're centuries old. We've put a lot of time and energy into revising the finding aid that we had for this archival collection. Our associate manuscript librarian, Hilary Streifer, worked really hard to make sure all the documents were described properly and indexed properly and, and housed properly. Um, and we've spent quite a while, staff and a couple of really fantastic interns, taking high-resolution photographs of the documents and, and putting them online on our digital collection site. So, you know, that means post-processing images. That means, you know, making sure the right metadata is there and editing the metadata that, that we had. And for a modern audience, I think fewer and fewer people are able to read cursive handwriting now, which is something that's being discussed in the archival community. But we also need to make these documents accessible to people. And so we've we've worked to transcribe documents and provide, you know, readable copies. The handwriting can be tricky. The spelling is kind of all over the place. Spelling wasn't terribly standard back in, in the late 17th century. And in the current exhibition, we've also enlarged the documents. We, we have enlarged reproductions, so they're a little bit easier to read. We can light them more more light. And in that way, we're, we're trying to make them a little bit more readable and accessible to people. What are some of the lessons that you feel people can take away in present day? We're trying to reinforce with folks that these events happen to real people, right? This is not some Netflix series, right, or a Hollywood movie. Like, this was, this was real. And real people like you and me were falsely accused of these crimes, and, and it destroyed dozens of lives. And as I mentioned earlier, ripped apart families and communities. And we want to make sure that our audience recognizes that false accusations can be made and believed and people can get caught up in the fervor of, of these accusations and the desire to blame other people and to perpetrate intolerance. And we want to make sure that folks can see that kind of thing happen around them if it happens around them. In this year's version of the exhibition, we're also thinking about this restorative justice actions, right? Like what did victims do? What did families do? What did the community do to try to repair the damage that had been done? And while you're never going to fully repair trauma such as this, you know, there is a certain amount of tenacity and perseverance and care for others and clear vision at what has happened that 
that is exhibited by these people to say like this was wrong and we need to do something about it to to fix it and to try to make things better and to try to to make our community a place that's more just and caring what are some myths or stereotypes if any about the salem witch trials that you'd want to debunk as someone who's gone through all this material the most important is probably that the witch trials were not caused by psychedelic episodes from moldy bread or rotting rye or wheat. That's a theory that came up in the 20th century that's pretty much been thoroughly be debunked by scholars. And so that's the one of the most important things to, to say that this wasn't a psychedelic episode. And there's been some scholarship recently on the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder because there was this border war north of the Massachusetts Bay Colony or skirmishes between French settlers and the native indigenous populations. And so up in Maine, there was this kind of these border skirmishes and the French and Indian War was happening. And so there were refugees coming into Salem from the north and they probably had experienced some very traumatic events. And so there has been some work to investigate, like, were some of these visions a result of PTSD? And, you know, after more than three centuries, why do you think people are still so infatuated with this moment in history? I think it has something to do with the fact that, you know, this happened kind of at the birth of America, in a sense, you know, in just a couple of generations, we were at the American Revolution. You know, this is what one scholar calls the first instance of a government cover up in America, where the Puritans were trying to suppress real discussion about what happened during the trials in order to preserve their their power in their form of government. And we see this, the rise of the freedom of the press and freedom of speech and, and even the freedom of religion growing out of this. And so it's a really important episode in our local history, but also the history of this country. I think part of it is that what really happened is kind of unknown to us and in a way unimaginable. You know, it's really difficult to know what life was like in 1692 and people weren't walking around with iPhones and recording things or tweeting about it. And it's, it's hard to imagine what, what really happened, which to me is why the documents are, are so important. Finally, I think there's there are millions of descendants of people who were involved in the witch trials. You know, there were 170 people accused and hundreds more that were involved somehow. And you know, we constantly get visitors to town who are descended from one person or another that was executed or who was a magistrate or, or who was involved. So I think that family history is also part of why this has been kept alive and why we're still talking about it today. The Public Library Association believes that data doesn't have to be scary. We have free tools and resources like Project Outcome and Benchmark to help public libraries make data-driven decisions. Be a part of national-level research by participating in the 2023 Technology Survey. You'll get free access to data visualizations and peer comparisons, while PLA will use the data to help advocate on behalf of public libraries nationwide. Participate by December 16th and be entered to win a prize. Visit PLA.org to learn more. Troy Public Library in Michigan has hosted a scary story contest since 2016, and its 2023 contest is currently underway. Last year, TPL received 133 submissions, and librarians worked together to choose one winner from each of the five age categories. Winners are chosen based on creativity, story structure, character development, use of descriptive language, and of course, their scariness. We asked three library staffers to read us the spookiest passages from last year's winning entries. 
Hello, my name is Olivia Olson. I am the head of community engagement at the Troy Public Library. Today, I'm going to read an excerpt from Am I Dreaming by Zoe P. This was the winner of the kindergarten through second grade category of our 2022 Scary Story Contest. Emma closed her eyes with Fifi, her fake bunny. She started her dream. Hee hee hee! Emma heard witch sounds and zombie growls. Grrr! Mummy wraps peeling. Rip! The sounds were getting closer to Emma. Emma felt bristles tickling her tummy. Emma wiped her eye and saw monsters of all kinds. Emma turned and ran. She was so caught up and it was 5 a.m., so she would wake up soon. The broom knocked Emma down, but the witch looked down at, Wake up, morning sunshine, said her mom. Yay, said Emma, I'll be downstairs. Okay. When Emma got out of bed, the door opened for her by itself. Hi, I'm Emily Dumas, Library Director at Troy Public Library. This is I Miss My Mama by London Baker, winner in the high school category. Last night, I heard her in my room. She was weeping, standing over my bed and weeping. Her eyes were bloodshot. She looked so sad, not like the pretty mama I always knew. She'd been crying a long time. My little brother was sad too. I don't think he knows exactly what happened yet though. He's only three. I've seen him crying too though. He looks sad, like a piece of him is missing. I remember the funeral. Everyone had gathered in this large room and had food and stuff. It really would have made a nice party, had it not been for the coffin. My coffin. Mama spoke at my funeral. She talked about how much she had loved me and how I had been her special little girl. I wanted to go to her, but I knew that eventually I'd have to leave. I didn't want to make her sad again by leaving a second time. I'll always be watching her, though. Hiding in the darkest corners of the house, waiting behind the doorway to see her. Standing in her closet, watching her and Daddy breathe while they sleep. Waiting for the moment she'd be with me again. I hope it's soon, because I really miss my mama. Hi, I'm Nicole, Marketing Associate at the Troy Public Library. This is Public Transport by Cole Van Amberg, winner in the adult category. I took a seat next to an old woman who was trying to knit, but her hands were shaking. I smiled tiredly at her, but she didn't make eye contact. Looking around, I saw you across the aisle in a stylish, long brown coat with a leather journal tucked under your arm. I must have admired the aged paper in it for a bit too long because you saw me and smiled hesitantly. I immediately flushed with embarrassment, though I didn't know why. It was perfectly normal to admire a cool keepsake, even if I also happened to be admiring the man who held it. I decided to pop my headphones in to avoid a further interaction. Needless to say, I'm not a romantic. The car jostled suddenly, upsetting new passengers slightly and spilling someone's decaf, but the seasoned riders thought nothing of it. I heard a high-pitched whistle and took out an earbud rubbing my ear sure i was just tired but instead of feeling relief the noise grew louder then light flashed outside the car windows which was unusual given that we were underground in between stations 
I turned over my shoulder to see sparks, and the steady, high-pitched whistle instantly transformed into a screech. Chaos. This Halloween season, the Public Library Association has a spine-tingling opportunity for your library to be a part of national-level research. Do your Wi-Fi speeds go bump in the night? Are your public access computers older than the Crypt Keeper? Does your library offer wickedly cool coding programs? PLA wants to know. Participate in the 2023 Technology Survey and be entered for a chance to win a fantastic prize. Visit PLA.org to learn more. Don't ghost us. Your library data matters. Archivist and librarian K.L. Pereira has been a tarot card reader for more than 20 years. We discuss her experience teaching tarot at Westfield Athenaeum in Massachusetts and what the cards can tell us about ourselves. She also demonstrates how traditional readings are performed by looking into my future. Check out AmericanLibraries.org for the full video showcasing Pereira's talents and the beauty of her tarot deck. Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of tarot? The art of tarot, tarot as a visual medium, is really, you know, centuries, if not millennia old. The iconography is extremely varied um, and comes from many different cultures all across the globe. The form we're most familiar with, what we might call the Rider Waite Smith deck of tarot, that really started in Milan in the 15th century, and it was a card game. It had nothing to do with you know, what is my future going to be, um, and asking questions of the deck. That really came into play much later in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, when the cards actually started to be used for divination. Um, Not so surprising when you can think of the Victorian obsession (laughs) with death (laughs) and mortality and talking to ghosts and the deceased and things like that. I think that tarot is so popular today, particularly I saw it really during the pandemic and post-pandemic, people are feeling really lost and reaching out for guidance. You know, one of the things I love about tarot is that it's so accessible. Anyone, really anyone can pick up a deck and shuffle the cards and, you know, look at these wonderful icons, these images and divine meaning for themselves. I think that's one of the most important myths to debunk (laughs) is that you have to be psychic, you have to have some kind of special power or something like that to really be able to use tarot cards. And that's really not the case. You know, they're not evil. They're not, you know, I came up in the era of you know, the 1980s and 90s, the satanic panic era, (laughs) where everyone's mom was saying, no, the Bible says you can't like use those. They're terrible. They're horrible for you, you know, but really tarot has nothing to do with anything untoward. It's, it's really a tool for self-reflection as well as an art form. I think that we really forget that tarot decks are housed at the Beinecke Library, at the Morgan Library. MIT has a really wonderful collection of um, tarot in their distinctive arts collection. And these are really 
incredible pieces of art, as well as a positive tool for um, self-reflection. Now, how did you get into tarot card reading and how many years of experience do you have in it? Well, you know, as I mentioned before, I sort of came up in the 1980s and 1990s. And as a teen, I grew up near Salem and I went into one of the shops in Salem and I found a tarot deck and I was very curious. And, you know, at the time being a very nerdy teenager, I was very into Arthurian legend. (laughs) So I picked up an Arthurian tarot deck and you know, wanted to know all about the Morgan Le Fay and the witches and like the the powerful women in the tradition. And I started going to my local library and taking out books on tarot and on the tradition. And I've been reading tarot cards for over 20 years for myself and for others and teaching classes on tarot. So I've been very, very fortunate to have a wide experience um, with tarot and with meeting just some really fantastic people in the tarot community. So you led three monthly classes when you were at Westfield Athenaeum on tarot card reading. Can you tell us a little bit about that program and how it came about? The class really started as someone sort of jokingly said to me, oh, you should teach a tarot class because I was doing our development of our like 133s <laughs> in the Dewey decimal system. And I really saw that as I was building that collection, that books on tarot were flying off the shelves, that we were getting lots of requests. And I really just could not keep that section stocked. So my experiment was um, I purchased some Uh, tarot decks. They sell them right on Ingram. (laughs) Now they're very popular. New decks come out every month. So when you're doing your monthly collection development budget, (laughs) you can factor it in. And so I just ordered a couple of decks and I I said, well, let's see what happens. Let's see if they're popular. Let's see if people really want to physically handle the cards. And I was shocked at how popular they were. Again, the books and the decks were flying off the shelves. So I talked with our program coordinator at the Athenaeum and said, um, you know, what do you think about having a tarot class? I really just developed a beginner's tarot class thinking maybe a few people will show up, but the response was huge. We scheduled three classes to begin and they all had waiting lists that were full. (laughs) Do you have any interesting anecdotes to share, perhaps like a patron who stood out to you or a session that was really memorable to you? You know, there were groups that formed. I had one group that was three sisters who went through all the classes together in their 70s. It was adorable. It was the like the cutest thing ever. And they were so excited and they were just like, hey, like, we're doing this together. Like we always wanted to do this. And by and large, a lot of people would tell these really interesting stories about, oh, people in my family used to read cards back in the 20s or the 30s. Like it was a thing folks would do that for a long time, I think, you know, became very frowned upon. And now is just garnering more and more interest as it's such an accessible medium. And do you have a favorite set of tarot cards or like what's a good beginner set of tarot cards that you would recommend? So the set that I would recommend is actually the set that I'm going to be using today (laughs) um, to give you a reading. The set that I recommend is the Modern Witches Tarot Deck by Sterling Ethos. So it's one of the distributors of tarot cards. 
And this is based on the Rider Waite Smith. So it will have, you know, the same system of um, a quote unquote traditional tarot deck. But what I love so much about this deck is it is inclusive. So different races, genders, abilities, body types. It's a really beautiful evocation of community. And it's easy to look at and to read, to really um, focus in on. Very colorful. It's just a really beautiful deck. A trick about tarot cards and with finding tarot cards is that they're often published by gaming companies. So if you are looking to find any, you can look under gaming companies and they will often have those available. And that kind of leads us to our last question, which is what advice do you have for librarians who want to implement tarot reading programs at their library? You know, start with collection development. Um, If you notice that the 133s in your library, if you use Dewey, are really just very popular, um, try adding some decks and see what happens. And then um, find someone who is a passionate teacher as well as a lover of tarot. You know, I taught for over 15 years. (laughs) So for me, it was just a lot of fun. And it's all about experimentation and building confidence. So it's very much about being able to interact with the community and opening a space where people are going to learn. And, you know, and there are definitely wonderful books out there. I suggest anything by Rachel Pollack and you know, you really can tailor it to your community. Maybe your community is looking to have women's groups or to have groups for teens. There are definitely ways to tailor um, tailor the class and tailor the content for folks who have specific interests. Tarot is for everybody. Is there a story or topic you'd like us to cover next? Let us know via email or social media. Thanks for listening and happy Halloween.